Have you ever been in one of those conversations where you know you're being set up for failure? You know, it's kind of like, hey, you want to go out for dinner? Sure, what would you like to eat? Oh, I don't care. You've been there if you're married, all right? And if you haven't, get ready. Maybe you've seen a reporter on television interviewing a government official or an office holder or someone running for uh, office, and the reporter will ask a question that their guest never seems to answer. And as a young person, I was always like, man, this is just a golden opportunity. You can prove your intelligence by answering the question. It was really clear. And they ramble on about a platform item. They ramble on on staying on message. This is what I will do. This is why you should vote for me. And they don't answer the question. And as I've gotten older, I've understood those questions aren't always as straightforward as they seem. The reporter is skillfully trying to lay a trap, right? They're trying to pit this person against their party, or they're trying to uh, expose ineptitude on the, on, the, on the part of the government or this official. And so that person knows that they are being set up. As we look to John's gospel this morning in chapter 10, I think we find a little bit of a similar passage here, a little bit of a similar question. Jesus is posed by those uh, opponents of his. So if you turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 10, this morning we're going to look at verses 22 to 42. And uh, thankfully there's a page number that corresponds to the blue Bibles that you might find scattered throughout the auditorium. And if you uh, don't have a copy of the scripture, I encourage you to open up that as we work through the text. You will get a lot more out of the sermon if you're following along in God's word. And so we encourage you to do that, and you're welcome to take that as a gift from South Canyon if you don't own your own copy of the Scriptures. So this morning we find ourselves in verse 22, and it says, At that time the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. Now that is the modern day feast of Hanukkah. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Straightforward question, right? Jesus goes on and answers them. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's just pause there for a moment and kind of unpack what we're seeing here. Uh, The setting is it's the Feast of Hanukkah. Jesus is in the temple. Now, the Feast of Hanukkah, if you're ever at all paying attention to our current calendar, it is in the wintertime, as it was back then. The Feast of Dedication, as it's in the ESV, or 
as we know it today, the Feast of Hanukkah was a relatively new feast for the Jewish people. Some of these feasts went all the way back to the time of Abraham. Some of them went back to uh, the time of the Exodus. But in 167 B.C., less than 200 years before Jesus is being asked this question, less than 200 years before they're celebrating it in real time, the Syrian emperor Antiochus Epiphanes conquered what is known as Israel, and he went into the temple and he desecrated it by offering a pig in worship of the Greek god Zeus. And in a heroic struggle, Judas Maccabeus led a successful revolt against the Syrians, and three years after that pig was offered as a sacrifice in the temple, Judas had defeated the Syrians who were controlling the area, and they had cleansed the temple, and they resumed offerings and sacrifices to Yahweh, Israel's God. And so this feast was a commemoration of that cleansing and reconsecration. It was a joyful eight-day celebration of the most recent Jewish victory, some 200, close to 200 years before this time. And it was also a rejoicing of the freedom to worship Yahweh unhindered. This is the time when Jesus is walking in the temple. This feast of dedication, this consecration that was full of lights that were used in this to celebrate the newness and the life that came out of darkness. This freedom to worship. It's ironic, isn't it, that they don't recognize the light of the world and the one who came to give true freedom. So they ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And look at verses 25 through 30. And I think this is what Jesus' argument is. And this is what I want to leave with you today. Faith in Jesus is something only believers can experience. Faith in Jesus is something only believers can experience. Now, that sounds kind of like a duh, right? Faith in Jesus is something only believers can experience. You believe you have faith. Yes, it is exactly that. Only those who believe in Jesus will experience faith. That's the point. And if this is your first Sunday here, we've been going through John's gospel. Here we are in chapter 10. We started at chapter 1, and we've had multitude of sermons on this book. And we are seeing this path where Jesus keeps doing incredibly amazing things, and he is opposed. First, he's breaking ceremonial things, like he's working on a day of rest. And they misunderstood that that was okay. So he's taking a little guff for that. And then it shifts to he's saying things about himself that they totally reject in spite of what he's doing. And so the opposition against Jesus is increasing more and more and more. And over time, what we're seeing is, why, isn't these, why don't these people get it? What's wrong with them? They don't believe, and therefore they won't have faith. And this is so obvious. Jesus told them they don't believe him at the beginning of verse five, uh, 25. 
And it's, it's, it's fair to ask the question, where, where did Jesus specifically say, I am the Christ in John's gospel? Where is this recorded? Well, you won't find it plainly spelled out. So what's going on? I think Jesus is saying, guys, you've been watching my life and my doctrine. You've been listening to me teach now for years, and you still don't get it. I've not concealed anything from you. And so if we just do a little mental rehearsal of what we've seen so far in John's gospel, back to chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11, he turned water into wine. In chapter 4, he healed a man's son. We have remote doctoring now, right? You can get online, Skype, FaceTime with a doctor. They diagnose you. They talk to you. Jesus healed. He was the first remote healer. This man's son, Jesus was never saw the son. He spoke a word, and that boy in that bed some miles away was healed. But that's not all that Jesus did. In chapter 5, he healed a man who had been lame. He fed 5,000 people with a sack lunch in chapter 6. He walked on water in chapter 6. He gave sight to a man who had been born blind without the means of surgery. Jesus had revealed his identity to the woman of Samaria in chapter 4. And he told the man in chapter 9 who had been born blind who he was in verse 35. The disciples certainly believed in Jesus as the Messiah. That's the first word that goes out in chapter 1 and verse 41. Hey, come and see, we have found the Messiah. It's also their confession in chapter 6. Jesus in chapter 8 has declared that unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. He's been very clear. He declared in chapter 8 in verse 58 that He eternally existed before the revered father of of the nation of Israel, Abraham, was even born. And he did and said all this and so much more as John records in chapter 20 and verse 30. Yet they still refused to believe in him. So don't read their question and look at Jesus' answer as what we described early on as a skilled politician squirming out from underneath the pressure of the spotlight, trying to stay on message and not get caught up in real questions or traps. Jesus isn't doing that. What he's doing is, I've already shown you I am the Christ. And as he says in verse 25, you do not believe. They refuse to put two and two together. And it's it's no accident that John puts Jesus' healing of the man born blind right before this passage. A passage where the sighted demonstrate their blindness. And I think Jesus makes this point in what he says in the next few verses. So as we look back again at verses 25 through 30, we see that he says, I'm doing the Father's works. You look at my life, guys. You look at the things that I've done. I am doing what the Father has sent me to do. Only God can do these things. He connects his entire teaching ministry and the works that he's done to the Father. He says, in effect, the Father loves the Son. The Father has sent the Son into the world. The Father has given the Son a mission to do. And what does the Son's response to this? He loves the Father, so he obeys the Father. 
And as we read in verse 30, the Father and the Son are one. Jesus is saying, the only thing I do is what the Father wants me to do. God's not cleaning up messes after me, trying to buy people off or solve problems that I've created. No, everything I say and do is the result of what the Father wants you to see and hear. He's taught a lot about this relationship between he and the Father in chapter 10 earlier, as we saw last week. He speaks a lot of it in chapter 5, 6, and 8. He's going to go into even greater detail with his disciples in the upper room in chapters 14 through 17. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says in verse 26, you don't believe me because you're not my people. You don't belong to me. And what does the gospel of John open with? But in John chapter 1 and verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They didn't believe Because they weren't believers. And faith, friends, faith is always a gift from God. You see, the knowledge of Christ is not attainable on our own. Believers believe in Jesus because of the Father's work. This is foundational to the Christian faith. John 1, verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, your salvation, Christian, is started in the heart of God, and it has been produced in your life as the result of the grace of God. None of us can boast, as Paul says. How can the one who is so needy and who's so dead in their sins and trespasses, who's so corrupted, how can they glory in the fact that someone else has to come in and set their house in order, clean them up, work on their budget, clean their rooms and their spaces, and instruct them and teach them and lead them and be their caretaker? How can that person boast except in the grace that they've been given? Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, my sheep, here's the distinction between you and my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now what's interesting is last week as we looked at that parable of the good shepherd at the beginning of chapter 10, the emphasis was all on the sheep. The sheep are listening to the shepherd's voice and they're following him. They know his voice. But here in verse 27, What's the emphasis on? It's on Jesus' knowledge of his own sheep. Friend, if you think, if you think you are living your life without any God understanding anything that's going on, you are mistaken. Especially if we are Christians. Your good shepherd knows what your week has been like, and he knows what your week will be like. And he knows the pressures you're going to face. And he says, follow me. And because the sheep know their shepherd knows them, there's delight in habitually following him. Jesus is revealing that connection between God's gift of faith and then what it produces in us, which is a faith that follows Christ. 
He first loved us. And His divinely arresting and captivating love has been coupled now with the confidence that we are known by this One. And that then elicits this joyful, continued obedience in the Christian life. I am tired of hearing Christians say, or people saying about Christianity, that it's all about what you can't do. And it's, it's a punishing life. It's a life of Spartan living. It's a life of sacrifices. It's a life of real sadness and sorrow. Yes, all those things are true, but they're true about your life too. I mean, I got so sick and tired of sin that I wanted something else because sin was so exhausting. Don't tell me that living any way you want is somehow better. But in reality, what the Christian life is, while God doesn't promise everything's going to be easy and there's a Walgreens on every corner and your life is simple, He does say this, that when we understand the grace that He's shown us, when we sing songs like we just did about that cross where His love was poured out on me, oh man, our burdens get lighter. Our joy increases. Our confidence in uncertain times remains unmoved because it's fixed on Him. The One who first loved us. The One who is shaping us and growing us. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. And then He goes on to say, My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is exactly what it appears to be on the surface. Jesus is promising life everlasting, life without end, which stands in opposition to the decay of our world and our own bodies. And he says, this is the gift that I give my sheep. It makes us wonder, who would try to snatch the sheep from the shepherd? Well, this is why this passage flows from verses 1 through 18. The good shepherd knows his sheep. He's protected them in the fold. And who is it that climbs over the wall to get into the sheep? What happens when the sheep are let out of the fold and they hear a voice that's not their shepherd? They scatter. And so it is the thieves, it is the robbers, it is the false teachers, it is the non-believers who are working actively to disrupt and corrupt your faith, who God says, they can never pull you from my hand. One further word on this verse, Jesus doesn't promise we will escape earthly suffering, only that he will save us no matter what befalls us in this world and I think especially with what's going on right now in our world, whether you are a Christian in Russia or Ukraine, whether you are a Christian Palestinian or a Messianic Jew, or you are just a Christian who is suffering, whatever my God ordains is right. And in His holy will, we will abide. This, this idea that Jesus cannot be frustrated in His keeping you is also reinforced in verse 29. It's this double emphasis. The Father who's greater than all, there is no one who's able to snatch them out of His hand. So in verse 28, Jesus says, no one will snatch them. And then in verse 29, He says, 
no one is able to snatch them. And I don't know if there's any sweeter truth in, the, in what our passage is pointing out to us today than this. Your endurance, Christian, doesn't depend on your grip on Christ, but His grip on you. Your faith, your faith will ebb and flow. Anybody that tells you that is not being honest about the Christian experience. You will have things take place in your life that will almost explode your faith and turn it into a million fragments. And you need to hear this because your shepherd knows who you are. And he has promised he will never let anything and that no one and nothing is able to separate you from his love. His hold on your life is an enduring and abiding truth. And that may be the only thing that gives you comfort and strength for today. But it is enough. It is more than enough. Jesus is, in effect, saying, be comforted by listening to your shepherd. Hear his voice. He knows all your struggles with faith, all your struggles of sporadic obedience, all your, your fears, all your worries, all your needs. And he is telling you, Christian, both I and the Father have got you. In verse 30, he speaks again of the Father, declaring his union. We are one. And again, this harkens back to the very first chapter of John. In verses 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, according to Jesus, and by proxy his Father, since he only says and does what the Father wants, the Messiah's purpose was not to throw Rome off, but to bring eternal life. A life which comes through faith in him. A life in which he secures his sheep and he shepherds his sheep. A life that is certain because Jesus is one with the Father. And so why is it that Christians can boldly say, in spite of my sin, I am confident that God has eternally saved me and that nothing and no one can pluck me from our hand? It is because of the indivisible unity between the Father and the Son. You see, Jesus, in what he does here in these verses, he is focusing entirely on relationships. Don't miss that. He, he's saying, the reason you don't want a relationship with me is because you've already rejected me. You cannot believe in me because you, you don't want any part of me. But my sheep, the ones I have a relationship with, they hear me and they follow me, and I will do more than just teach them stuff. I'm going to give them eternal life. And that life is guaranteed because it is grasped by the hand of me and the Father. 
Now, what's the response? Let's look at verses 31 through 39. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Well, there's a happy ending. In this good news, they respond this way. So Jesus protests and he, guys, 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 wait a second. Let's think about this. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, and it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? He's quoting here from Isaiah 82 and verse 6. Big teaser, we're going to come back to this verse, Isaiah 82, 6, tonight in our prayer meeting. That's going to be our devotional. Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? Now, he goes on to say, if he called them God's to whom the word of God came and Scripture can't be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So, here we see it. They ask Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And what do they get in response to their question? Far more than they bargained for. There was nothing wrong for a man to order his words and his actions according to the will of God. Even the ancient Jews understood that God is sovereign and that he dictates the the way we should live and we should follow him in both the things we say and the things we do. That's not a problem. The problem was for a man to call himself God. And that was the kind of action that actually reeked of what Antiochus Epiphanes had done in that very temple less than 200 years prior. Where he said, I am a God and you are going to worship this God and he exalted himself And he profaned and desecrated that temple. So that's what they're hearing. And what they're doing is they are rejecting all of Jesus' claims to be divine. Don't be confused about this. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. That he and God are one. And they reject it unequivocally. In spite of the good works that Jesus has done... They rejected the idea that that his actions, the good works that he did, were actually the basis for believing his declaration of being divine. Okay, yeah, only God can do that, but that doesn't mean that you're God. They couldn't bridge that gap. And so in verses 34 and 36, Jesus quotes to them. He takes an obscure passage of Scripture and gives a surprising and unexpected defense. His point is clear. If Scripture cannot be broken, and Scripture called these men, these judges, and these leaders who were acting on behalf of God, gods, lowercase, then how much more appropriate is it to apply this to the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into this world? His 
argument, his logic, his reasoning is flawless. And that is the singular event that stopped them from casting those stones at him. And again, as I said, more of this will come in tonight's devotional. So let's just move on in our remaining time and focus on what Jesus said in verses 37 and 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But, but, if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, why does Jesus say this? Why does he say that even if you don't believe in me, believe in the works, when Jesus has already said, the reason you don't believe in me is that you are not my sheep, How can they believe unless God calls them? Verse Chapter 5 and verse 37 and 38. The Father calls people to believe the Son. Are we at a point in John's Gospel where these men have no ability to repent and to believe in Jesus until after His death and resurrection as Jesus said in chapter 8 and verses 27 through 29? You don't understand the things, I'm, the things I'm saying to you now, but after I am raised up on the cross, these pennies will start dropping. You'll start seeing things. Or is Jesus setting them up to say, I want you to do something you can't do? I think simply put, what Jesus is doing here is displaying the mercy of God. And you need to hear this this morning. He is providing yet another opportunity for these stubborn rejectors, these haters, these non-believers to reflect on his works so that they might learn and understand that the Father indeed is in Jesus and that Jesus is indeed in the Father. And so I just ask this moment, what are you going to do with what you've learned from this interview with Jesus. Will you reject him like these men did? Will you, maybe you're here as a guest and we thank you for coming. You're here at the invitation of a friend or a family member and you're just trying to mark time and so it's like the clock is ticking, James. Let's, let's wrap this up. I just want to ask you, will you take a moment to seriously consider who Jesus is. Because there really is no middle ground. You can't be ambivalent about Jesus. The things he says are truth, or they are so far wrong, there is nothing in between truth and where they are. He does not give us a middle ground. Can you believe that a man is God, that he's divine? Can you believe that he could do these things and say these things, that he was sent from heaven and he is going to return to heaven? And so, again, we see their response to this. They make their decision, and I'm praying that your decision today would be different than theirs, that you would believe, that you would cry out and say, God, you indeed are right and holy. I am a sinner who needs a Savior, and that you would cry out, for Jesus' righteousness to be applied to your sin debt, 
to wash you and make you clean. That you would join us in this happy congregation of confessing the worth and the excellencies and the beauties of Christ as we have just sung. That you would know that comforting, sweet, abiding love that has been poured out for you. But these men, they've made their decision. And yet again, they sought to arrest him. And this would be funny if it weren't so timely. You remember back in verses 28 and 29, we just talked about it. Jesus declared no one would be able to pluck his sheep out of his hand or his father's hand. That our salvation is firmly in the hand of God. And then right here in this situation, we see an example of this. As Jesus' own life is preserved by the hand of God. Not once, but twice. They stretched out their hands to stone him, and now they stretch out their hands to arrest him. But their hand is short. God's hand is long, and it is strong. Brethren, there can be no greater peace than to know that our lives are in the Lord's hands, come what may. We're going to sing as our closing song, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I want you to think about these two things coupled together. Our good God has ordained a path for us, and His work in us will be accomplished regardless of all opposition to Him. He will indeed hold us fast. This feast, which was joyfully celebrated by the Jews of their last great victory, it, it, it gave them hope to the future that once again they could throw off not just the Syrians, but ultimately the Romans. They celebrated the restoration of the freedom to worship God. And yet now, on that day, it has become the occasion for Israel's greatest defeat. And their ultimate rejection of Yahweh and His Son. This is Jesus' last public ministry in John's Gospel. And what we see is the Jews make a final rejection of all that Jesus was. They had the opportunity for true worship of the Father through His Son. And it was lost on them. Jesus had the power to bring light into darkness. And they, as these sheep who were not of His fold, rejected the shepherd they refused to know. And as we look at these final verses, verses 40 through 42, we read that Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What we see here, that in spite of the fact that only those who believe in Jesus can have faith, we see here in verses 40 through 42 that God ensures his work will be accomplished. They rejected Jesus here in Jerusalem. He left the temple. But look, many others believed in him. He came to seek and to save the lost. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing. And although John had passed off the scene, he had been killed by Herod. We see that his words and his actions still resonated in the hearts of those who had heard him speak. So the, the people that had listened to John, they recognized this. John did no miracles, but this guy is unbelievable, the things he's doing. 
and they finally understood what John had been telling them. He was subordinate. He was a forerunner. He was a mouthpiece. He was the one who was to open doors for people to hear and meet Jesus. And John fulfilled his purpose. So there's both high praise for Jesus, and there is for us a reminder, a comforting knowledge that John's ministry did not die with him. And so I want to just speak just a word of application for any parent in this room who is tired in your parenting. Any grandparent who's been asked to step into the role and care much more for your grandchildren than what you might have anticipated at this time in your life. Every Christian who is seeking to make disciples of Jesus find comfort in these words. Your gospel labors for Christ will indeed outlive you. Yesterday, I heard the testimony of a mother who prayed for her wayward son for 18 years. God answered those prayers. You see, the seed that is buried in the ground today doesn't immediately bear fruit. It takes time. So, as Paul says in Galatians 6, do not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Parent, keep on. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Yes, keep disciplining your children. Keep being patient and correcting them. Keep discipling them. They may not get it right today. They may not get it tomorrow. They may show glimmers of hope. And then it's like they throw it all away and they go back 10 degrees. We... We do what we do as Christians, not because there's an immediate emotional good feeling and good results that come from it. We do it out of obedience and faith. We believe that in the end, Christ will be glorified. Trust in the promise that God's word does not return void. So as we close things out this morning, what does Jesus' words, his life, and his calling have to do with us? We see that faith in Jesus is something only believers can experience, and so we have to ask ourselves, do we believe? And for those of us that do believe and are walking in faith, there is a real hardship that life comes and brings at us, unexpected diagnosis, Loss within a family, hardships, financial strains, sicknesses. And we need to hear that Jesus says he's going to hold us fast. And we need to put all of our hope. And it's so wonderful that we can rest in those things. There's nothing wrong with saying, Jesus, you made these promises to me, so please keep them. You have to keep them. I can't keep working anymore. I can't keep stressing over this. Jesus, you said you would, so do, please. And we have full confidence that when we pray with that faith, when we quote the word back to the living word, that that pleases his heart, both that we know him and that we are coming to him and that we trust him, and he is eager to see us uh, follow him in faith, to see that faith grow. So in light of all these things, 
How will you respond to this message? Will you see that we need to take this message to others because they are pursuing life outside of the one who can give them eternal life? Will you see this as a call that our lives should be shaped by the gospel? I mean, if this is true, if Jesus really is who he says he is, and the stakes are this high, you have the cure for AIDS, for cancer, for conflict, for sin, sorrow, and death, you have that answer, that cure, then what what impact should that have on our lives? Does that move us off the dime of just thinking about how we can pad our nest egg and make life more comfortable for ourselves? Does that stir us to start talking to people around us? We need to wrestle with these things. We also make a simple appeal to believe. Don't reject the Jesus that you find in the scriptures. Believe. Because he's life. And he's come to give that life to you. Lord, we thank you for this sweet and tender word. Even even you demonstrate to us how in the face of hostility, you respond with mercy and patience to these people. You don't shy back from saying where they're at, that they have no relationship with you, that they're not a part of your flock. But Lord, you give them an opportunity to ponder yet again your words and your works, and you call them to believe. May we use this word as a source of comfort. May we see in it the glories of our Christ, who is indeed one with the Father. And may we find comfort and hope. We pray that there would be good gospel conversations that would take place today as the result of our time together this morning. And we ask all this, Lord, for the glory of your name and the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.